0: Welcome to BIB Today, the podcast from the news from a business in Vancouver. I'm Kurtle Point publisher and editor in chief. The winner of the BC NDP leadership race, of course, becomes the province's next premier. And my guest today has entered the race following an extremely narrow second place finish last year in the Vancouver Granville riding in the last federal election. Angela Aperdure uh, brings to her pursuit of public life a really clear commitment to measures to mitigate climate change and inequity. She sees them as centerpieces of the entire broad range of policy that any party has to have, any government has to have at this point. And she's put the party on notice that it has been insufficient to these tasks. She built credentials in her work from a very early age in high school for that matter. She delivered a very notable speech on behalf of student organizations at COP17 in South Africa. Then she's connected with work at places like the West Coast Environmental Law, uh, the Sierra Club BC and the Climate Emergency Unit. She's founded the Padma Center for Climate Justice And she has the backing of the Dogwood Institute and the Canadian arm of 350.org, two highly influential activist organizations through social media and and the like. And it's fair to say she's prompted her opponent, Attorney General David Eby to lay a couple of eggs early along the way in acknowledging his competition. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Welcome, good to see you.
1: Thanks for having me, Kirk. Uh,
0: You know, candidates uh, always need a purpose. Um, How would you define yours?
1: My purpose is that I'm the tip of the spear for a much broader movement of people that have put me up to this task. Uh, the decision didn't come from 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 me alone. It uh, it was it was me being sort of pushed into this position by by a, a broad swath of folks from across the province.
0: And, and you know what happened to the BC NDP that mobilized you that mobilized this movement, as you put it.
1: Well, um, I've been working on the advocacy side of things for you know my whole career now, and um, especially in the past few years with uh, my work at the Sierra Club, the Sierra Club of BC and West Coast Environmental Law. That was it's really work that's um, adjacent to the BC government and and sort of like in a in a weird dance with the BC government, uh, constantly interacting with the government. Um, Uh, advocating for uh, law reform and better environmental policies and better climate policies. And so getting to know the actions and the record and the legacy of this government intimately when it comes to the climate emergency and and all the related pieces around it. And so um, there is certainly, you know, uh, one of the, one of the common criticisms of me is that I've been criticizing the party for years I see that as a healthy engagement with uh my political home which is this party uh but but certainly knowing the the significant delays on climate and the and the utterly inadequate uh record on 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 climate and the environment um especially among other things was was part of the reason for for stepping up
0: you know. It is rather unusual, though, you have to admit, I mean, it's not often that you get a candidate entering the race complaining about a sitting government. It's, like, it's usually you're, you've been losing for years and years and years. And somebody says, well, we've got to change. But well, this is a party that's winning and you still say it needs to change.
1: Yes, because, you know, uh, the goalposts are different in the context of the climate emergency. It's not about maintaining power as a party. It's not about parties at all. It's about what is an adequate response to the moment that we find ourselves in. And um, I mean, on on the topic of of, of the party itself, um, the party memberships have have been cut by almost half over the past yeah. uh, over the past few years. I think there is a, a real dissatisfaction with the direction that the party's going as we see the world around us changing and our and our public systems really under strain from um, this this pandemic period. There were also a lot of promises that were made to get this party into power. And I remember five years ago um, cheering them on uh, when they when they got to victory and cheering them on again when they got their majority. Um, and feeling that, I, you know, we had friends of friends and and uh, in in positions of power. And there was a real sense of hope in the air. Um, and so there's been a real fall from grace, uh, and I think that's what's led to this situation.
0: Interesting. What do you think is truer, that John Horgan doesn't believe in these matters, or or just that he doesn't believe enough British Columbians believe in this?
1: Great question. I would say it's a bit of both. I think yeah. there's a generational gap here. Um, and, you know, I have to acknowledge I've been tracking the climate issue for over a decade, and. I can see that um, it, it's it's an incredibly nuanced and complicated issue. And what I see is a clear generational gap in terms of how the younger generation understands the crisis um, and how the older generation understands it. And that difference is kind of um, along the lines of, the younger generation does not see climate as a compartmentalized issue. We see it as an overarching um, redistributive challenge um, of equity. And um, the older generation of of uh, decision makers tends to tends to see it in a compartmentalized way and tends to see it as not something that impacts people's material needs. Um, but yeah. as the climate crisis accelerates, we can see that that's, that's not true and that's the wrong approach. But we've been sort of barreling down a path with that approach for a long time. And so we've made a series of policy decisions that reflected that compartmentalized approach. So I think... Uh, the truth of the matter is most of our decision makers simply don't get it on climate they don't understand um that uh, a true climate response is a um is an investment in the public interest and and is a, a worker first working people first response um they kind of see it as an extra add-on after we take care of people's immediate needs and that's that's not the right way to look at it
0: right so so let me pick up on that because I've I... I read you a couple of times saying things like that there needs to be a coherent, a cohesive narrative in yeah. politics. And that too many times, well, almost all the time, what politics really is is an assemblage of interests you know, uh, that add up to something that you can govern by. Right. Yeah. So, so explain to me how that would then inform your early steps as a leader, what would you draw together, uh, as uh, in order to make that coherent narrative?
1: Well, you know, there are a lot of things that seem urgent on the table right now, climate, you know, there's a housing crisis, a poison drug supply crisis. What's needed is a central effort to, um, understand the connections between those things so the first step would be to establish a climate change secretary and put it in the premier's office so that decision making around climate is not being relegated to different ministries where they get lost and compartmentalized and um, piecemeal action gets um, gets put forward it's it's we need a, a centralized place to to take action on the things that that connect all of these different um, public system failures. And mm-hmm. so uh, that would be one way to begin the reframing, to see climate as the central point from which everything else um, emanates and is connected, because that's, that's threatening every aspect of our lives, our economy, our ecology. Um, and, and that gets to the root of, of why we have this crisis in the first place. This is a man-made crisis, and it's created through that fundamental um, Relationship between society and economy and land that um, that is that is no longer serving us. It's a broken relationship.
0: Yeah. we've um, we are playing catch up on decarbonization, unquestionably, right? And and, and you mentioned uh, again in some other interviews that that we need a reprioritization of our economy. Uh, so, what, what would your government be doing as early steps on that?
1: I think the first thing would be to re-examine some of the economic assumptions. Um, and we'd have to re- re- re-examine a lot of the assumptions and the values underpinning policymaking in BC through the lens of um, the crisis of our time, which is the climate emergency. And so reevaluating our economic assumptions means looking at the model that has allowed wealth accumulation to an extreme level over the past few years. Um, mm-hmm the top of the economy and a an economic shock like the pandemic and then the subsequent shocks from the war in Ukraine um sort of showed us that the that the the assumptions that we've made encourage and incentivize and reward wealth accumulation at the very top. And that comes at the expense of of people on the planet. And uh you know we saw that last year, 2021 was a historically large jump in um, corporate profits, uh, co- corporate profit margins, and and um, corporate profits themselves hit record highs, highest in Canadian history. And we haven't seen that translate to wage increases. And we haven't seen that, that uh, we haven't seen a trickle down effect or uh, a reinvestment in the public good as, as a result of that. And so that's one of the fundamental assumptions
0: to challenge. As, as you know though, uh, the business community in this province actually sees it as being tax uncompetitive already. So what I hear you, if I think I, I hear you correctly saying, is that really there would have to be a stronger uh, impact on, on corporations in terms of their, their taxation levels, um, their, their wealth distribution models and that kind of thing. How, how do you do that though? And keep people coming here to invest. Keep people coming here to to want to set up um, businesses that are long lasting. Where's the incentive for them to do that?
1: Well, it's a it's a really hard um, that's a really hard one to get past because you know that's one of the deep deep options and uh, practices that's core to our economy. It's courting investment, um, and i somewhere, somewhere across the world, across North America, across Canada, something's got to give with that assumption and right and 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 to start reprioritizing away from sort of incentivizing and inviting industry um, towards laying out our values and laying out our red lines um, Mm. and and inviting industry to to um, to conform to those. And I think it's, I think there are a lot of other factors at play. BC is one of the most beautiful places in the world to live. It's an amazing place um, to attract employees. Uh, Vancouver is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And so there are a lot of other things that, that, um, that, that create the conditions for business to thrive here. And, and so I think shifting the focus away from taxation structures and towards a holistic set of values that, that make this a good place to do business is yeah. a good way to go.
0: And I, my perception of business is that it all already appreciates these values, um, even though they're not as necessarily as as uh, uh, strongly put as, as you would want them. Um, but we also live next door to, you know, uh, the United States that seems very prepared to do all kinds of incentivization for corporations that uh, we live next door to Alberta, which is running radio commercials, trying to get me, you know, in, in my electric vehicle to drive across the border and live there. Um, how, how do you make sure that British Columbia actually gets that share mm-hmm. when, when it might feel like you're, you're attacking business or that you're, you're, yeah. you're homing in on that?
1: It's a really good question. Um, there's a few things I think business exists on a spectrum, and some of the things that we're talking about are uh, a windfall tax. So we're not talking about taxing businesses out of um, out of existence. We're simply talking about adjusting windfall margins so that okay. they they are closer to the rate of wage increase um, and closer to the rate of inflation, um, so that the 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 burden of cost increases, the burden of inflation is not falling squarely upon the consumer. And I think that's a very fair and reasonable um, small measure to take. And so there's a certain sort of like boogeyman uh, mentality around taxation, but a lot, a lot of um, taxation that would that would redistribute wealth to a significant extent through the economy is very reasonable. I mean, just a 1.5% corporate um. Ta- uh, sorry, a 0.1% corporate tax increase could fund half of a just transition um, right. for workers that puts workers first um, towards the renewable um, energy industry, and so there are there is a lot of space within that um, to 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 work with that 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 prioritizes businesses in the long term because you know I mean some of the youth say it really well. Um, uh, they just say no jobs on a dead planet. And I right. think in a lot of ways, it comes down to that. Also, as I was saying, business existing on a spectrum, you know, small businesses are the backbone of the economy. And so we're not talking, you know, small, medium, or even large sized businesses. We're talking mega corporations. Um, okay. There's a lot of wealth there to go around.
0: Okay, so so I get that. Now, um, I've also read, you, you you do say there has to be a managed decline of fossil fuels. I mean, you're not shutting off the gas pumps this afternoon kind of thing. Uh, can can that, and, and then you say that it has to work in the interests of workers, right? So um, can that only be a unionized environment potentially?
1: Interesting. Um, I think the values of the NDP are very, it's a pro union party. And and I believe in, I believe in the role of unions and we're seeing a lot of conversation and debate um, around, around that in this province. And so I do believe in worker protections. I do believe in adequate um, conditions and, and redistribution of power into the hands of workers. And so do I know if the just transition will happen only through unions? No, um, I don't know where, I mean, I know where those investments would need to happen to create those jobs. I don't know if all of those places would be unionized environments, but I, I certainly do believe in the, in the in the value of unions, especially in an environment right now where workers are facing the brunt of inflation and of austerity politics.
0: Yeah. But I, what I hear you say is that you really want a, a cultural shift, uh, a value a value shift and that doesn't necessarily pinpoint it. Um, okay yeah, so
1: and, and, and I'm not saying that's a perfect silver bullet solution either. you know we want we want uh, unions that, that really are worker run and that's a big shift to make as well culturally.
0: You, you talked earlier about the the party uh, membership declining. and you can kind of see this almost across the board with all politics. Uh, where young people are really not engaged in the traditional political parties uh, in, in a way that maybe they were 40 years ago, 35 years ago. I mean, there's been a, a steady decline on this. Um, what gets young people back? I mean, for instance, uh, is, is an important question. Um, you can be 12 years old and buy a membership to elect you, uh, to make you premier, in, in fact. Um, But we don't offer the vote to anyone at that age not even close should we be offering the vote to at least someone who's 16 years old when they get when they have a whole bunch of other responsibilities out there
1: definitely i mean especially now uh if you look at the youth and their level of uh, political participation which can look different from voting um Mm -hmm. we we have an unprecedented a uh, generation of youth that is that is passionately uniting around this issue of the climate emergency because it's their futures on the line um to put it very simply and so uh youth as young as you know there are there are folks involved in this campaign who are as young as 12 and 14 who are incredibly well versed in the issues who know where the levers are and who the decision makers are and That's a that's a that's quite a measure of being prepared to participate in democracy. And so I certainly think that the voting age should be lowered to 16. Um, And there's a very organized movement of youth um, trying to make that happen right now. I don't
0: Uh, really see a downside to it. Yeah, not just youth, some older people, too. Um,
1: Totally. Yeah.
0: You were so, so close to getting a seat in the House of Commons last year. What is it, 78 votes, am I right?
1: Oh, no, it was a bit higher, it was about 400.
0: Oh, okay. Once the chance
1: voting was counted, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay.
0: All right, but that's that's still tremendously close. What did that campaign teach you that now you feel you can apply to how you campaign here?
1: Great question, that that campaign was a, was a big, learning opportunity it was my first time entering electoral politics and i couldn't have predicted the way that that would have uh the, the way that that shook down mm-hmm. um uh, it taught me a few things it taught me about well it it demonstrated a very clear appetite that i didn't know was there for <laughs> transformative change there's a there's a clear openness to try a different set of values at the policy making table um and I think that was fueled um, by last year uh, str- the string of climate disasters that happened, where BC became a, a bellwether for for climate breakdown across the country, across the world. I was actually at the United Nations climate conference uh, after the election in November um, in a in an international setting, and BC was really a hot topic of conversation for for people around the world because we had just been slammed by the heat dome and then wildfires and then the atmospheric river and um and so yeah so demonstrated that that appetite for for let's try something different business as usual does not seem to be working what's what's what needs to give here um it showed me the power of the grassroots um how um How they're, you know, largely in my in my career as an activist and an advocate, I've kept those two worlds very separate. I've not engaged in the electoral political world. The theory of change of social movements has tended to be, um, uh, you know, we build power on the ground to move whoever's in the in the actual seat of elected power. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's less about parties and more about um, the moral clarity of the movements on the ground. And you know, my heart's still there. I still believe in the power of social movements to, to guide us to a better world. Um, but I think the calculus has been changing in recent years where there's more of a, an interaction between the two. Uh, and I'm a prime example of that. I went from movements into electoral politics. And I think last year showed me that that's, that's a good move. That's what we need. We need more um, elected officials that that come from that grassroots place. Yeah. um yeah and it taught me about organizing it taught me it taught me about uh taught me about the the demands and the rigors of a campaign um sure. it taught me about team culture uh a really important lesson that it taught me was that the team that you build around you is a reflection of the world that you want to live in and so the process is as important as the outcome i mean we lost that election and yet there was uh no loss of morale from that team it was uh it was an overall overwhelmingly positive experience for almost everyone involved. And yeah.
0: Okay. You've you've told me about 15 things that you learned externally. What did you learn about yourself?
1: Oh, great question. Um, I, I've always been a very purpose-driven person and I, I, I learned that, uh, Although I've had a distaste for politics for most of my life, this, this, uh, this is a place where I can be very useful and can, be, um, can open the door for a lot of other voices. I learned that I'm more resilient than I thought. Um, I learned how much I love people. I mean, politics has a dirty side to it, but right. I think back on that campaign and um, it was very beautiful. Um, for the human parts just that you know you're knocking on hundreds of doors you're having hundreds of micro micro moments of trust and connection with yeah. people and um I learned that that's something that really drives me mm. uh, yeah. yeah yeah
0: thicker skin too right thicker skin oh yeah <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay <laughs> that's good glad <laughs> you didn't get on that um, I learned
1: where to, where to seek criticism because it's important and where to brush it off because it's not important.
0: Stay off social media. Um,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> now, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I think, a, a, a different kind of question. So you said that if you don't win this, that you won't run for provincial office. Now I don't get that because uh, uh, you were prepared to sit as a, an MP in a group in Ottawa but you're not prepared to sit as an MLA in a group in Victoria, Wait, like what's with
1: that? Uh, I, I said that more out of a sense of um, exhaustion because for me, not enough time had passed from the last election to this one. This was an opportunity that that arose um, strategically uh, in a way that I couldn't have planned for. Um, and so uh, I said that more in the sense of, um, I, I really do I really do a lot of the issues that I see with uh provincial politics um require the support of the federal government. And so um I really saw a role for myself at the federal level to support what's happening here in the province. I'm very loyal to BC, it's my home, and so my work at the federal level would be to would be to support what's happening here. Um so I, I, I was surprised by my own um, uh, my own willingness to step forward this time, and it was because of the movement around me. And so I take my directives from the party grassroots, and I'll probably do that again if the, when the next election comes around.
0: Well, if they yeah if they if they want you to get in the field uh, to be a representative in Victoria, if you're if you're not the premier yourself, um, you're open to it still. You'll, you'll take your direction from that group?
1: Take my direction from that group. Whatever strategic or um, climate justice.
0: Okay. All right. Fair enough. I I, I wanted that clarified because I, I couldn't. I, it seemed to me a bit incongruent in your in your. Uh, <laughs> um, look, it's been great talking to you. And uh, I know that uh, you're out there uh, getting people to sign up. And my hunch is that of that, uh, re- reduced number of NDP members. Uh, there's not a big youth contingent in that group. So I is that where your focus will be?
1: Um, I think there's a few people who are resonating with this campaign right now. Uh, it's certainly the youth, um, certainly youth because they they want to see something different. They want to see a a clear break. They want to see clear signals that there will be a departure from business as usual. But there are a lot of uh, disillusioned party members who are not youth, who have stepped Mm. away from the party because there hasn't been a clear signal of change. And because they've seen the political culture of the party support um, incrementalism over real change. Um, It's a much broader swath of people than just youth. Um, uh, There are folks who traditionally vote green um, who see a lot of what they want reflected in the party plat in our campaign platform, and um, and there are folks who who um, are are simply arriving at a place in their lives where they're open to um, to different ideas. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, who might not have seen themselves there even a few years ago.
0: Okay, I, I have to end by uh, asking you the delicate question about how David Eby has been treating you so far um i have to say i winced a couple of times i'm sure you might have done that um what's happened there like what was that about he he kind of it's almost like he gave you a pat on the head um are you looking for a better engagement with that guy anyway at some point you know
1: (laughs) i have a lot of respect for David Eby and you know there's a clear uh we are not we are coming from very different worlds um and there's a clear um difference in experience uh between the two of us he's been handling these really tough files in government uh where the rubber hits the road for a long time and i i don't deny that um our profiles are actually kind of similar from 10 years ago when he first ran for office before yeah. the Christy Clark upset, mm-hmm. and uh, over ten years ago, um, and so I know that he sees that in me, and he appreciates that. I know that he respects me. I think that it's a, a I think that it's a, a strategy of the establishment to um, to sort of um, play the, the the politics of of respectability and and uh, appropriate qualifications and um, dismissiveness and. Um, I think that those are all things that they have in their pocket, just through virtue of being the establishment and being an older and more experienced government official. And so he, he used those strategies and, 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 um, that's, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm really not here to campaign against my opponent. I'm here to campaign for the story that we're trying to tell. Um, and so I haven't really given it much thought or, um, or attention. I've just been seeing it float through on my tour.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll let you off on that one. Um,
1: <laughs> no drama here. Sorry.
0: <laughs> well, I tried. Uh, okay. So it's been really good talking to you, and uh, I hope we'll catch up again before we get terribly far down the road with this campaign. Right. I hope it's, so it's, Yeah. Yeah. Good seeing you.
1: Yeah. Appreciate
0: it. Thanks, Kurt. Right, you take care. Have a good day Bye. now. Bye. I'm publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. Thanks a lot for watching.